0: Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Professor Ben Teitelbaum, and we're discussing his book, War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. So we wanted to do the show, and and the show is part of the series of covering actors and ideologies that have come to prominence post-2016. So if you're a fan of the show, uh, we did a show with Jade Parker on accelerationism, We did a show on the Proud Boys with Sam Kuttner and a show on the Boogaloo with Matt Kreiner. So that kind of brings us to the question of why Bannon? So Bannon of all these people is one of the few actors who has, who's had access to political power, right? But he's also at the same time, somebody who is espousing or thinking about this philosophy called traditionalism. So that's not, traditionalism with a lowercase t, that's traditionalism with an uppercase t. And w- the book uh, written by our speaker today kind of brings up this question of when does ideology and philosophy, what happens when it rams into politics? And this case study is, you know, through the lens of Steve Bannon. So please welcome my guest, Ben Titelman. How's it going? It's going well. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I want to start off with asking a bit about your background, because I think you're, you're kind of unique in the sense of the other professors and academics that we've had on the show, because your background is ethnographic research, and you have written extensively on, on the nationalist right and the right before coming to Steve Bannon. So if you can, like, sort of highlight your background and sort of discuss why your background is kind of sets you apart from other researchers of the right and of the nationalist right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I both, when I, when you were saying I have an unusual background, I thought you were going to talk uh, about, about music as well. I'm, I'm, you know, originally my PhD is music studies. Um, but yes, also, also as an ethnographer um, and it makes total, it makes total sense to me. I have to, I have to say it's, I, I feel like everyone else, should be the weird ones, uh, you know, explaining why, how they got to far right studies, but, but that's life. Of course. I look at, I look at nationalism. Um, I look at the far right and I see, especially in its, its post-war history, or let's say from 1980 forward, um, I see an abundance of expressive culture. I see, underground movements and political parties that are only political parties in name, that are essentially social groups that have no, for most of their history, have no claim on power. Um, And the interesting things about their lives and about their activism, if we want to call it that, really lie outside the bounds of typical standard forms of political contestation. Um, the likes of which we, we tend to connect with political activism in the, in the, let's say, the liberal democratic West, if such a thing exists. And um, so much of it for these organizations had to do with, uh, with their expressive culture, with their music in particular. Um, that's true of much of the white nationalist post-war right, for example, which in, throughout most of its history has been a music movement. Um, its largest gatherings were based on music its most successful and prolific fundraising had to do with record sales its most notable personalities um you know throughout europe and north america for a good chunk of time in the 1980s forward uh included an unusually large amount of large number of musicians um it's it's only relatively recently where we saw those those causes transition into more standard political parties, and that and that coincides, of course, with political success and the opportunity to, to gain formal political power. So, um, as a as a scholar of these these movements, I kind of feel like everybody needs to at least be a little bit of a music scholar. Music needs to be part of their background, and if not music, then subculturalism b- more broadly conceived. That's how I got got to it. I went into into PhD studies. Planning to study Swedish folk music, as a matter of fact, which is, has been one of my interests. I was going to write a dissertation on asymmetrical rhythm in Western Swedish traditional dance music. It was going to be very good, I promise you, the dissertation I was going to write. It would be very correct and accurate. No one in the world would have read it. Um, but while I was there, more than happy to be studying that. That's when the Sweden Democrats, um, a far-right populist party, um, in 2010 gained representation, um, gained their first entry into Swedish into the Swedish parliament. And one of their first moves was to announce that they wanted to increase funding to Swedish folk music. Um, and that caught my eye simply because it was the topic I was working on. And I thought I would investigate it. And the deeper I went um, into that story, all of a sudden I saw this narrative taking shape of a political cause that had been one thing and was using music to try and rebrand and and transform its image in, in mass society. And I just thought that was fascinating And that the deeper I got into that story, the more I wanted to learn more, uh, to, to continue the study. And, and my life, that was 2010. As I mentioned, my life has been about, about this ever since. Um, and, I, I was studying, I was, I was an ethnomusicologist, that's, that's the, a, a scholar who not only studies music but tends to study contemporary music and tries to understand how music fits in to a broader cultural system, and you tend to do that by studying the cultural system and, and by, by studying the people making music too, uh, becoming a participant observer, by um, coming to know them, also in the colloquial sense of that term over time so that you really are able to see the world through their eyes. Um, and I found that that technique was also helpful when I wasn't studying music, if I was studying just ideology or the sociology of, of the far right, that there were so few people doing that at the time for, for what I assume are, are obvious reasons um, for our listeners here, that it's, it suddenly felt like by by being willing to engage with these people, by willing to by being willing to get to know them um i i could learn something new and make new discoveries about this about this political cause that right before my eyes was was becoming more and more relevant to to global politics so i'll leave it there um but that's that was that was where things started and that's how i saw my you know my background connecting with this particular cause
0: so um, when I was reading critiques for War of Eternity, it was, it was kind of something, it was the, like the biggest critique that was coming out of like The Guardian was you are effectively humanizing or, um, you know, showing Bannon in this positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was preparing for this interview, I read one of your papers, um, in the, the Case for the Immoral Anthropology. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And if you can sort of, because when I was reading the paper, it did strike in my mind, like this is a bit controversial. Your, the methodology you lay out and why you need to have this methodology. Mm-hmm. So if you could like outline this idea of an immoral, quote unquote, immoral anthropology and why it's important as a sort of
1: general method and as a general sort of, study. Sure. So, and, and I, you know, and I have to say that the terms that I use in some of, you know, some, some writing I do is meant for general audiences and, and some is meant for, for a much more narrow academic audience. And that, that article was intended for a narrow academic audience. Had I, had I ever known that it would have gotten as much, um, you know, generalist attention as it had, I might, I might have chosen different words. I, I have to be honest, but um, let's, start, let's start here. Um, ethnography, the, the, the research method I was talking about, its chief resource and the chief objective is to form relationships uh, with the people being studied, um, for, the, for the scholar to form a, a relationship of, ex, of exchange, um, dialogue principally with, with the people that you're studying. Um, of course, there are other ways to study living people. Uh, a lot can be learned from surveillance um, certainly the air of objectivity is much easier to claim if, um, if you never have any actual contact with the people that you're studying. Um, but you get different types of information when you do that. Um, problems and misunderstandings, for example, about someone's life, uh, are much more difficult to correct if, if you never have any, any meaningful or productive contact with them ahead of time. Um, you know, they are always going to know a whole lot more about their lives than you do. And uh, similarly, I mean the, the type of knowledge that that is often aspired to in ethnographic research is is empathetic. Um, not to be confused with sympathetic, although the the two can cross, but it's empathetic in the in the more value neutral sense that you are attempting to see the world through someone else's eyes, you're attempting to try and understand what they how they reason. Um, whether or not, you know, that makes you more or less favorably disposed to what they do and what they think is, is an entirely, entirely separate issue. But in order to get that type of knowledge, in order to, in order to gain, uh, that, that sense of value neutral, um, empathy, uh, you need to be in contact with them. And, and ideally the, the deeper, uh, the contacts and exchange, uh, the better that type of knowledge is, is going to be. Um, and you're not going to have it uh, again if you uh, if you're constantly just raging against the person, right? That that's there's there's just a practical aspect of that. Um, now, uh, when you forge these relationships with the people who you're studying, um, it you I mean think of think of any other positive relationship that might uh, might exist. It involves give and take. It involves listening. Sometimes it involves uh, loosening your control in particular around what's going on, um, uh, in, and in some cases, even around your, you know, uh, the products that you might in a, in a sense, be collectively creating. And in ethnography, especially as it has been developed in the last, let's say 50, 50 years, there's been a huge emphasis on, on making sure that these, these relationships, in fact, Feature some surrender of of authority and control over the research process from the scholar to the person being studied. Um, not complete, of course. That would be that would be something totally different. Um, but but making sure that this is not an instance where an outsider comes in um, with their biases, uh, puts someone under a microscope, and and walks off and produces produces a piece of research that um you know that is just their their control so there's there's a massive amount of, of uncontrol uh, in in this in this new more ideal form of, of ethnography what I've reacted to um, is is the fact that scholars and ethnographers are aware of this they're aware that this research process involves a relinquishment of control uh, to some degree and at the same time they've been very invested in the notion that through our research, we will pursue a moral anthropology, that we we ought to be using our position, our expertise to advance um, a specific particular notion and understanding of social justice. Um, and I sympathize, I sympathize with that as a private person, but I think it's irreconcilable with these methods, um, which are not... Uh, are not defined by, by the scholar's ability to shape the political message of what's going on. In fact, they're, they're much rather defined by chaos, um, by an inability uh, to, to know exactly what is going to come out of, of the relationships that you form with the people you study, and, um, and that therefore we should plan on the political connotations of our research being something other than what we hope that they are. And if we are doing our research correctly, um, and if we're not studying people who just happen to completely embody our ideals, and I'm not sure that any such people exist, um, then we can count on that that variation and that uncontrol featuring something that might might be called immoral um, by those standards of, of anthropology. So that's where the term the term comes from. Um, now, there are many drawbacks to that, of course. Um, I'm making this case recognizing, or at least claiming to recognize, that there is a sort of either-or in, in our research, that uh, if you want to be close, if you want to gain the type of knowledge that we distinguish as, as, as being ethnographic today um, in the sense that I've I've conceived of it, um, then you're not going to be passing the tests of, let's say, a journalist at, at the Guardian who expects a book on Steve Bannon to be 100% uh, pejorative all the time and in all ways, and plainly and in straightforward ways. Um, that you are going to you're going to lose a, a touch of that. Um, <clears throat> a, a bigger question is. You know how much, how much value is there actually in, in producing research that has such a clear, clarified, and consistent political message? It perhaps is it's it's a coincidence, or at least good luck for me that I I also doubt the value of of such research. Um, And part of this is has is just experience. It's not a theoretical uh, conclusion or stance on my part, but I've, I've seen so often responses to my research like that, like a, like the, the review in the Guardian of of my recent book that said, you know, they'd read my work, they would presumably learn new things from reading the book. Um, a lot of my research is, is because it's ethnographic, it's dealing with, uh, you know, aspects of, of the lives of the people I study that, that aren't well known. Someone will read all that, um, And it will lead them to the conclusion that the ideas and the people and the agendas being studied are very dangerous. Um, But I won't quite label them in that way in my own research. And their response then that, well, you have to, you know, if if you don't label it, then it's gonna then you're you're participating in apologetics uh, for the people. If you don't if you don't use more condemning language and pejorative language. Um, you are normalizing these ideas. I get it theoretically, but every time someone is saying something that like that to me they prove that in fact they don't need my editorializing in order to see the actual consequences of these ideas um, that that an in-depth thorough presentation of what someone actually thinks turns out to be enough it seems uh, for for those reviewers uh, to to draw those conclusions about uh, about the people and the ideas involved the only way that would that would not be the case is, would be is if if these reviewers thought that they in some way had powers of discernment that other readers don't and i happen not to think that that's the case so to to summarize all this again uh, i think that a, a a type of knowledge that I consider vital to a more complete understanding of human beings and and uh, human society and political life is is a type of knowledge uh, ethnographic knowledge that that does not lend itself well to um, in in general a more hostile approach to the people you 're studying but 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 beyond that also a consistent a politically consistent uh, message and politically consistent character to the writing. Um, and I think that that has to be embraced, and I think it has to change the the identity of of the scholar. Having said that, I also do not. I also think that a lot of commentators, journalists, and scholars included, um, overestimate uh, the importance of that and underestimate the the discerning uh, capacity of, of of educated readers out out in the world more broadly. Interesting.
0: So. I'm kind of curious how you come to Steve Bannon and why why you chose Steve Bannon as the focal point of research, because like the thing that was kind of amazing to your book is that I had seen interviews with Steve Bannon and I was like, oh, he's you know fairly intelligent, can lay out a point, but a lot of the underlying philosophy, particularly his understanding and his link to traditionalism isn't immediately publicly obvious. So Mm -hmm. if, if you could sort of guide us through like, how did you as a researcher come to like, see Steve Bannon as a focal point, as a, you know, topic of interest, you know, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I, so, I mean, the first that I heard of Steve Bannon really was that he was an extremist um and i remember when he was appointed to the national security council um you know as a professor who studies extremism i decided, you know i i called my local congressman you know asked him to oppose the appointment <laughs> um and but then i then i saw a few articles about his interest in an, in an author named julius Evola. <laughs> Um, and he had just mentioned Julius Evola in an interview in 2014, and I had come to learn of Julius Evola as being a sort of paragon for one of the more marginalized, let's just say weird, to use a technical term, <laughs> wings of the radical right in Scandinavia, and that that wing called itself traditionalism with a capital T. Um, they were they were few in number. Um, they weren't especially enfranchised, although in Sweden they were at the head of a, uh, some of them were at the head of a a publishing house, a far right publishing house called Arktos, which, um, which, which was really in the process of expanding and and taking up a, a, a huge bit of space in the, in the international kind of white nationalist far right intelligentsia. Um, but aside from that, these were not party politicians, um, but the the ideas themselves were extremely radical that's that's what I knew of traditionalism That's what I knew of Julius Sevilla is that you know this stuff was so so opposed to our common sense or political common sense in the West that it almost seemed unserious that it almost seemed just like a joke or a bunch of a bunch of kids sitting around coming up with some way to sound, you know, more dangerous than you, than their parents could ever imagine that, you know, that's kind of what I thought of it. And the, the personalities too, were not, they were not the types that I, I, I really could have ever imagined, let's say, taking over a political party or be, you know, operating in some, some bureaucracy to, to any notable effect. They were, they were esotericists. They were occultists um some of them were converts converts to hinduism some converted to sufism um you know so there it was kind of almost a novelty if i'd be talking to to journalists and they would it, it's very common to hear you know very you know cartoonish characterizations of the far right and you know why would you study the far right they're all just you know they're all just nazis and they all just kind of you know have differing variations of how they want to portray how much they are a Nazi, um, you know. So I loved telling journalists, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, have you have you met the the Muslim converts among the Islamophobes? Just to you know, just they were just uh, they were just strange. They were just odd. Um, and you know, I learned some of their texts. I would I would teach them in in some of my courses at the university. Um, as I write in the book, some of my students ended up describing these traditionalists these these far right traditionalists as as partaking in dungeons and dragons for racists that was you know that was the way that they they chose to characterize these these people so on on a number of on a number of planes in other words uh because traditionalism was so so radical and because it was kind of socially and culturally so eccentric the notion that anyone in a position of power in washington <laughs> in the U.S. government, would have even heard of this stuff, let alone might cite it, uh, was was enough to really catch my attention and catch catch the attention of a number of scholars, too. I'd, I'd later read in Josh Green's book that that Bannon not only knew about Julius Evola, but he knew about, um, uh, you know, a figure whom Evola looked up to um, named René Ganon. Ganon didn't, didn't think too much of Evola, but... Um, And it showed right then that, okay, so this this guy has actually a little bit of depth of knowledge of this this very rare, very small intellectual tradition. And so I started trying to get in touch with him. And um, it really took me a year of sending emails and texts um, before I got just the slightest little hint of reception, of receptiveness. Um, and found out he was going to be at his place in New York on a certain date. And I made sure that I just appeared on his doorstep. <laughs> um, just took a flight flight across the country and, you know, let, let his handlers know that, hey, I'm here. And when we had our first conversation, um, you know, some of the things that struck me right off the bat were that, A, the way that he speaks is just chaotic, and you, you just hear this this massive river of name-dropping, um, you know, sentences starting in the middle of other sentences, you know, long tangents, drawn-out thoughts, extremely hard to hold to a subject. But throughout all that, um, he named about every single book that I knew of, that I know of, Evola, um, having written that was translated to English, yeah he named a huge portion of rene gonon's text he knew the texts of uh, a handful of other traditionalist authors as as well as 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 a number of figures who were at the peripheries of traditionalism and really by the second interview that i had with him i learned that you know while he was he was certainly aware of rene gonon for quite some time um in the early 90s he was socializing, organizing with other people based on their interest in in a sort of traditionalism-adjacent figure and thinker, slightly slightly better known, named uh, Gurdjieff. And um, so this was not, you know, at that point, I thought, okay, this is not a gimmick uh, on his part because, because there is gimmickry around Steve Bannon um, in a number of ways. And I, and I think I was guilty of a... Of a misunderstanding that I'm, I'll be bold and say I think a lot of people are with him that you see phoniness and inauthenticity or gimmickry in one aspect of their being and then assume to you know assume that it that counts for everything that they do um, you know and again I'm, you're, we're kind of trafficking in cartoon characters here because I think we know with most people we know closely that that that's rarely ever the case. Um but at least with traditionalism you almost saw a commitment to some doctrine or ideology that was that actually extends beyond his interest in let's say populist right-wing politics you know predates the uh, the tea party and and all of his mobilization um, you know around let's say even even anti-islam activism which he in in interviews with other scholars, is traced to uh, to September 11th. This was a this was a long standing interest. It wasn't just an interest. It was it was the basis for uh, for social organizing as well. Um, and and that's when I knew I I had a topic. Of course, things went on, and I saw that you know his reading got deeper. That he discovered Julius Evola, which brought. His interest in alternative spirituality and and other forms of traditionalism into, line, into alignment with right wing politics, and that in more recent years he's even been been attempting to organize a network with with other world figures who, at broadly speaking, the same historical moment, um, other figures who also were inspired and engaged with traditionalism found themselves. As as influencers in in countries with populist right wing leaders, um, so that's when I knew that that I had a bigger story going on here. So,
0: when it comes to evaluating Bannon, would you consider him first a traditionalist, like an actual capital T traditionalist, the one embodying the values of traditionalism, however defined? And then, if you if you don't find that he is a traditionalist, how would you define what a traditionalist is? What are, you know, what are their views on modernity? What are their views on progress, etc.?
1: Mm. Well, Well, it, it's a tricky question and, and, it, and it might be that I'm the wrong person to ask. I'm fairly agnostic when it comes to granting people titles, especially titles that I myself <laughs> am not, guarding for, for personal reasons, um, I look at, say, the history of Marxism and see that there there are people who them call themselves Marxists and that historians and commentators call Marxists whose divergences in ideology are far greater than that between Steve Bannon and someone who we would most definitely call a traditionalist. Um, so with with that said, I mean, part of what I look at is to say, okay, does someone is someone familiar with a body of thought? Have they done extensive reading in a in a particular school of thought? Yes, for Steve Bannon. Have they not only read, but do they admire? Yes. Uh did they not only admire but identify themselves under in in some sense as belonging to um belonging to that school in the case of Steve Bannon? Yes. And an additional level to me is if is if they let it um, in some way, inflect their social or professional networking if they if they attempt to coordinate and gather with other people uh, who think that way? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon reads and, and thinks there could be some divine inspiration behind Joseph Smith, uh, the prophet of Mormonism. Um, but he doesn't do all those other things. If he did do all those other things, we might Still not quite want to call him a Mormon, but we might not know what else to call him. <laughs> we would call him some kind of a Mormon in some way, and that's that's where I am with his his traditionalism. Now let's compare that to someone for whom the process would be entirely uncomplicated. Um, this this philosophy, if we want to call it that, or worldview traditionalism. Um, it never originally thought of itself as a political ideology, um, and for a great number of its of its thinkers today, it still it still isn't. Um, it saw itself as a religious practice, a telling of history, an understanding of the human condition, speaking in very very broad terms, and in terms of actual actions that a traditionalist was supposed to take, um, it it centered more on being initiated into a chosen religious pathway. Um, you know, one of a handful that this, this school regards as, as being legitimate. Um, you know, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, there are some people who, let's say in the, in the far right, who oppose multiculturalism, immigration, all of, all of those things, uh, you know, live in Europe, uh, you know some might call them white nationalists, they're somewhere in that in that territory, uh, who convert to Hinduism or maybe Sufi Islam. Um, you know, that's and especially if it is a religious collectivity um or or an order or a school that is explicitly tied to traditionalist thinkers, you know, that's the foolproof. That's that's the ultimate traditionalist. That would be an indisputable uh, at least public display of of adherence and affiliation with this school, Steve Bannon hasn't done that. Um, the fact that he's Catholic, that's you know one of two branches that let's say a Christian might might find themselves in that would put them closest to to traditionalism. Um, but he says quite he has, and I put this in the book. He's he's also given me lots of indications that in the same breath as he would assure you he is 100% Catholic, that there are eccentricities um, and, and uh, ways in which he breaks with orthodoxy that, that also push him a little bit in this direction. Um, he speaks in ways that would make him, a, make him seem a sort of religious pluralist, uh, those who think that there are many valid pathways up the same mountain. That's often the, the, the metaphor used. And and he even told me once, you know, when I asked him, could you ever have converted to to Sufism, to Sufi Islam? He sat for a surprising amount of time weighing that question, and eventually said that, well, it just wasn't my, you know, it's not the the culture and society I was born into. Um, so this this is his religious practices. The the institutional religion that he went into was still still rather. You know his his regard for it is still somewhat unorthodox so a long a long response to that question but that's 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 how I see things and I understand we've we've now talked a lot about traditionalism without actually having having gone into it but I'll, I'll turn this back to you uh, that, that's a great segue actually <laughs> um, because
0: like traditionalism i just when I read your book um it just popped out to me that there were so many paths to it you've you've already touched on how um, buddhism you know sufism and that sort of that path to it but maybe we could take a step back and maybe we could work through traditionalism as a philosophy particularly what would what really sort of stuck out to me was traditionalism's view of progress destruction and of modernity mm-hmm. because for me as the reader, it was kind of, it was very shocking that like people like Steve Bannon or Dugan would, you know, especially Steve Bannon, who, you know, was the head of Cambridge Analytica, is the head of Breitbart, is the head of these very technical operations. And yet traditionalism would kind of point us in the direction of rejecting modernity. Um, but so back to the sort of basic question, when we talk about traditionalism, what are the key tenets of it philosophically, and then how does it view progress, destruction, and sort of modernity, however defined?
1: Sure, sure. Well, to, to get to that, i us going to start, start at some of the basics. The traditionalists believe that there once was an integral whole religion, true religion, authentic religion, um, millennia in the past, and that it was lost to us and gradually um fragmented and forgotten as as time went forward and that and that today you can really only find it piecemeal spread across certain religious practices and typically those those practices are are esoteric uh branches of of major religions. Uh so Sufism is Islam we've talked about Hinduism uh would, would be one esoteric Christianity um some would say that uh, you know the Kabbalah, um, you know, mystical Judaism would be uh, one one avenue that preserved some some aspects of of this religion, but but it's lost to us. And and the only thing that you can do today is find you know find a pathway. And if you devote yourself to that one pathway, you might climb through it high enough to get a glimpse of what once was. Why it was lost to us is because most traditionalists look at time as equaling degra- degradation and destruction, um, and uh, in in complete contrast to the modernist notion that that history is a tale of oppression and suffering that painstakingly we have climbed our way out of, and thus that our our greatest existence. Uh, can really only be in the future. Um, if we overcome our past, the traditionalists view things opposite, in opposite fashion. Um, they, they see, instead, time as, as promising more, more destruction, um, you know, more distancing from, um, from glory that used to be. But that's not because they view things in just a, a reverse linear notion. They, they believe that time cycles through itself. Um, and following following what I think most listeners might might stand the best chance of identifying with with Hinduism, they view time as as moving as cycling through four eras. Um, a golden era cycles to a silver, to a bronze, to a dark. After which there is a cataclysmic event and a rebirth into the golden era again. Um, and decline begins as gold moves into silver, to bronze, to dark, to gold, silver, bronze, dark, on and on and on and on. Um, these are not completely understood as as being a, a perfect repetitions of what was, but in, in terms of what matters in society, we see that cyclicality. Um, now, to understand why uh, why things are seen as getting worse, you have to know a bit about about how they think of society. Also, this is most most clearly, I think, uh, popularized or or at least. Um, Spread, spread throughout society are recognized in Hinduism. But traditionalists see, see uh, an ideal society, the Golden Age, as being one uh, consisting in hierarchy, in a sort of caste hierarchy, where you would have a, a small elite of spiritual, uh, spiritual figures constituting the upper caste, followed by a caste of warriors, atop a caste of merchants and finally atop a caste of slaves. Um, and that that particular hierarchy, we might all recognize that as you know the the upper caste as being the Brahmins in uh, in in Hinduism, it's a hierarchy that opposes spiritual concerns with material concerns. Um, you have the primary example being priests opposite slaves, those who work whose eyes are turned to the heaven, heavens and immaterial uh, pursuits versus those who deal with the ultimate materiality, their own bodies, and, and just work with physical things. Um, and they believe that as the time cycle moves forward, that, that hierarchy disintegrates. Um, in the same sense that the true, perfect, pure, authentic religion in, of, of the past was lost and degraded as time went forward, so too do they believe that the, the spiritual beings in society um, either disappear or become sort of costumed versions of themselves as, as the ages move forward. Um, and in parallel with this, they also believe that uh, when you get to the Dark Age, um, it's not just that priests and their values are no longer shaping society. Government is not theocratic. Art is not devotional. Um, but actually hierarchy as a phenomenon is gone. Um, that you no longer have boundaries between people, and instead you have just one mass class. So as the as the ages turn by, um, the the upper uh, the upper castes functionally disintegrate into those underneath them, uh, so that you have in the dark age just a mass society focused on materialism, um, and and all political life, all aesthetic life is going to be shaped around that as well, and um, So for, you know, there are a number of things that we can, we can say right then, Uh, you know, one is that, is that differentiation between societies, whether or not it is hierarchical, or if we want to extend the concept to borders and boundaries, um, that is seen, the loss of boundaries in society is seen as a hallmark of uh, decay and of this dark age. And um, it's, also to note, however, that <clears throat> if, if time rotates in this, in this fashion, that the only way to get to a golden age is to go through that sort of decay and destruction. Um, and that the process by which a golden age would be reborn out of a dark age would be one where mass societies, mass collectivities would be broken apart. Um, they would not stay mass societies, but they would be segmented um, so this catches right off the bat some you know perhaps this is is ringing some bells for some listeners as they think about uh someone like bannon the interest let's say in the European Union in seeing that that mass collectivity shattered into smaller nation states uh the metaphysical investment that suddenly emerges in relation to borders, national borders, um, but borders of all kinds. Um, you know, it, it's a worldview that would treat porousness, um, in society as being a hallmark of decadence. Um, and that would, that would treat a more virtuous society as one where boundaries are, are meaningful again. Right. Um, but also it, it lets us, it, it makes, it would make the followers very suspicious of the idea of progress. The idea that, that um, you know human society would have emancipated itself <clears throat> from some you know from some recent oppression, um, you know instead the, the way to have a virtuous society is to look into your past and, and to try and bring it to life again, essentially, not to imagine a, a new more just society than one that has ever existed in your in your working memory um, so I'll pause there. <laughs> Because um, that's a lot, a lot to take in, but that's, those are some of the basics of, of the ideology as it manifests in politics.
0: So something I found kind of interesting and that really just stuck in my head, um, even after reading the book, was Bannon's sort of accidental description of President Trump, of Donald Trump, however, whatever you want to call him, as a man in time. And I was wondering if you could sort of explain this concept of, of a man in time, because as I understood it or as I understand it, it sort of incorporates this idea of destruction, of sort of destruction before a golden age, if I'm sort of mm-hmm. understanding this correctly. Um, but explain to us what a man in time is and why Bannon would sort of accidentally call Donald Trump a man in
1: time. Sure. So one thing, if you think about that time cycle, it doesn't leave, <clears throat> doesn't leave a lot of opportunity for activism, right? If it's just fate, we're all just along for the ride. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing to do. And, you know, there's some traditionalists in World War II who thought that Mussolini and Hitler, I mean, really, and really this is, this is just Julius Evola, thought, thought Mussolini and Hitler Represented a potential reversal of time in the time cycle, and thought that if they could you know turn mussolini 's and hitler 's militarism into a more spiritual modality that they might succeed in unwinding time and getting you know finding themselves in the golden age without having to go through ultimate decadence but um, you know for the most part, uh, a lot of traditionalists see that time cycle as being predestined. But there was a thinker, um, her name was Savitri Devi, um, and she saw a, a role for figures to play in this time cycle um, while also recognizing that the currents of time still pointed in one direction. Um, the way I often explain it to my students is if you thought of the time cycle as as a big railroad track going in one direction, uh, this this particular thinker thought that you could Speed up the train. Uh, that that certain influential individuals might uh, might be able to accelerate time in ways others could not. Um, and she felt that that the actual substance of that the substance of time was not not just destruction, but more specifically violence. And that those figures who were able to perpetuate violence on a grand scale were actually Advancing time and doing something glorious for humanity by pushing us closer to that zero point when darkness bursts into gold again. Um, this was the pretext for her celebration of Hitler. Savitri Devi was uh, was what is called an esoteric Hitlerist, um, which I, I, I can assume most people have not seen in their Poli sci textbook or anything like that. Um, it's it's very you know it's very very dark, sinister stuff and. She, she had specific roles for figures, for different, different influential figures in that, in that whole process surrounding time that she thought Hitler embodied one of them. Um, those figures who understand that, that time is taking the circular course, um, if, they, if they realize that and decide to r- relieve themselves from the cycle of, of decay and, and death and destruction, they become men above time. Um but if there are figures who participate in violence in exceptional ways and make an appreciable contribution to the perpetuation of violence, they are called men in time. Um in in Hitler she saw as being a man in time. Um if there's if there's I, I should add, if, if she would say if there was a figure who understood the currents of time, but also understood that uh, and wanted to participate in some way in the perpetuation of violence for the explicit understanding, for the for the explicit reason of, of getting to a golden age. That was called a man against time. Um, but the man in time didn't need to have that understanding. They just needed to act. They did not need to be thinkers. Um, they just needed to participate in destruction. So with all that as background, I was pretty shocked one time when I heard Steve just in passing, called Trump a man in time. And it caught my attention. I thought a lot about it, you know, asked myself, okay, is this the sort of thing that people would casually say? Does he maybe not know the reference? And I didn't follow up at the time. And then later on, we had a conversation about Trump. And Steve said, you know, I mean, the thing about Trump, you know, he he is a force for disruption. And then he said, oh, he, you now he's a force for dis- destruction. And, you, you know, the, I mean, the thing about people like Trump is, you know they don't have to know why they're destroying or, de- or or causing destruction. You know they don't have to have. We were talking about time cycles. He said they don't need to have this understanding of of cyclic time and the importance of of destruction paving the way for rejuvenation and rebirth. Um, you know that was that was the conversation we were having. And so I asked him, you know, have you ever read Savitri Devi? And he said, Well, yeah, I've heard of her. And you know, laid the whole thing out, and and we also talked about the man against time, and he seemed at first to not know what what exactly I was talking about, um, but our conversation ended with a with a long silent pause, which which I had a, a hard time making sense of in the moment, exactly what was going on in his head. But with all of this laid out, it seemed quite obvious to me that that his use of the term man in time to describe Trump, uh, belongs to this conceptual universe. That's
0: so fascinating. Um, I wanna switch kind of footing a little to this this idea of cultural production. So as far as, as sort of you've conveyed here, that traditionalism is very much about spirituality. Um, but how does, traditionalism view cultural production so cultural production sort of broadly defined as music art writing whatever um and its understanding of culture if if the aim of traditionalism is to essentially you know create this golden age you know how does it view culture as part of that production of the golden
1: age Mm. traditionalists at large, let's let's leave the the, the right wing political brand of traditionalism that has you know has really been the, the the focus of our conversation so far. If we leave that aside, you know traditionalists talk about culture almost in a secondary role um, that it will reflect the spirit of the ages. If if we are living in the dark dark age, culture is going to reflect that ultimate materiality in um, that obsessive focus on quantity of bodies and massification, right? Mass society um, and leveling. Um, if you're in the golden age, it will be the high age of, of devotional art. Um, but where, you know, so, so, so it's, again, that's to say it's kind of a passive role. Um, it's, you know, the es- eschatology will really determine the shape and the content of, of culture, um, and it will register it will register the age that 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 we're that we're living in. Um, where things get trickier and more interesting is really the fact that a lot of traditionalists in the right um, are also interacting with with an ideological school called the French New Right, um, which which I see as being um, quite influenced by traditionalism. Um, and in those circles, you see another, another regard for culture um, where it's, it's inspired, at least formalized by, by a neo-Marxist philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, um, who thought that culture could be, in some cases, the actual engine of change in society. Um, he was looking at Italy and in, uh, you know, in World War II and thought that he saw all the economic conditions for uh, a workers' revolution and was trying to understand, well, why isn't it happening? And and one of the conclusions he came to was that was that public culture, common sense, uh, in Italy just was anathema to the idea of a workers' revolution, um, and that if you wanted to change things, you shouldn't start manipulating economic relations. You really needed to invest yourself in culture, and if you change culture, then you'll see political change, and then you will see economic change. It was a sort of reversal of of classic Marxism. Um, and, and far right actors have looked at that and said, okay, this is the reason why our, our values have no chance in Western democracies, you know, because the political left and right, they might have their differences, but there is a, there is a cultural consensus around the evil of our ideas. So if we want to change things, you know, we shouldn't just have more political parties and we shouldn't you know focus on elections we need to focus on culture and if we change cultural values we'll create space for political revolution um i think it's no accident um that traditionalists have been moving in the same circles as as people who think in those in those terms and steve bannon is is one of them but their their belief is is partially also that political life is is uh, less malleable than what a lot of other actors think it is. Um, they see tendency in political life much more restrictions and also much more predestined outcomes uh, by virtue of the fatalism of of thinking in time cycles um, than 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 do others who think that you know legislation and bureaucratic uh, transformation can can make meaningful changes in society uh, you know, they instead, you know, look elsewhere, look to other arenas of political contestation. And so I think that the, the broader, the broader interest in culture among actors like the French new right, you know, resonates with them for that reason. It's an alternative, uh, to investing in, let's say a democratic process that they see as simply being a symptom of, you know, the latest, uh, the latest turn of the ages. So as far as like participation in
0: politics, is it fair to say that traditionalists um, engage in politics more than actual substantive politics that lead to policy issues? So um, because I, I, I keep thinking of Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon never reminded me of a policy guy. He wasn't, his time at Cambridge Analytica, his time at Breitbart, his time in the White House never struck me as policy like in the mm-hmm. sense of writing bills, lobbying, et cetera, but rather engaging on issues of immigration or at Breitbart most infamously like race mm-hmm. um, and so stepping back um could would it be fair to describe tr- like traditionalists' participation in paul in politics as A metagame as engaging on meta politics as opposed to you know the substantive concerns of the state as Mm -hmm. manifested in policy
1: yes typically i mean and it's it's one reason why those few the tiny little sample we have of traditionalists getting close to policy or or in policy in bannon's case is 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 you know, typically one of chaos. It's, it doesn't work very well because <laughs> they, they do not want to subordinate themselves to practical politics and practicality. Um, but, you know, but really, with the exception of, of of Bannon and a few others, a lot of traditionalists on the right, operating within the radical right, are much more interested in the production of culture and, and intellectualism than running for political office. Um, it's, it's... It's... They're... In, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one figure in the book that I, that I write a lot about, John Morgan. Um, you know, he's, he's a writer and a book editor and a publisher. Um, and I think is, is extremely pessimistic about, about politics and, and sees it as a sort of meaningless, uh, meaningless pursuit in the Kali Yuga, in the dark age. Why would you, you know, why would you think that you could change anything with politics? Um, that You know, that's really the, um, the interest of of the traditionalist um, at at this stage, but um, the you know others. Uh, if you take Bannon or if you take Tibor Baranyi, um, Gabarvona, these these figures who worked in the in the political the Hungarian political party Jobbik, which um, you know which is which is quite quite far out there, even even in the world of of far right European politics. You know, he was he was willing to see his party um, embrace traditionalism. Thibault Barany was this advisor to the to the party leader was was eager to see the party embrace traditionalism, um, and the effects on its popularity be damned. Um, you know, he you know confronted with the idea that if he went out and said, "Okay, our political party follows this teaching, and we believe in." you know some you know a religious pluralist uh way of looking at the world knowing that that would turn off so many hungarians he, he you know really didn't care it was about it was about standing for something and and, and putting a, a line in the sand for one's beliefs um it's idealism right to to the to the furthest extent that you could you could imagine it and and in that sense we saw uh, also you know i think just a, a disregard for for the logic of of electoral democratic electoral politics uh showing itself um with with traditionalism so um that's you know uh, again that's where i i see a sort of ideological motivation for for that that disinclination toward toward the gritty of politics it has to be said you know steve bannon alexander Dugan, um olavo de Cavallo they also would, you know, in some cases get involved in the nitty gritty. Um, you know, Bannon was involved in the writing of certain executive orders uh, for Trump, especially that, you know, the very first weeks of the Trump Trump presidency. Um, so so it's not that, you know, someone like him is, is completely against it, and it doesn't have to accord with his traditionalism. I don't think it really does. I think that's just, you know these are parallel interests and engagements on, on his part, but, um, the uncompromising idealism of Bannon there, there, I see a resonance with this. So, um, something that I found quite interesting
0: and, uh, especially with like the other shows that we've done on the ideologies that have, have come up to prominence into post 2016 was fitting, Bannon and traditionalism within the milieu of the right that has come up post-2016. Because when I think of the phrase alt-right, I think of two things. One is Steve Bannon saying, Breitbart is the magazine of the alt-right. And then I think Mm -hmm. of Richard Spencer. Actually, I think of three things. Richard Spencer, uh, the white nationalist, and then uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, the the sort of Mm -hmm. troll you know you know provocation and all that yes. so with Steve manon like like how do how do we put Steve and traditionalism when the, within this right milieu is is it, it was he comfortable with people like Richard Spencer the ultra sort of the white nationalism ultra nationalism is he com- I mean obviously I, I feel like he, mm-hmm. he's very comfortable with the troll parts of the the right but mm-hmm. Like, you know, I guess the question is like, how... oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, sorry. Like explicit race nationalists, you mean?
0: Yeah. So I'm just like curious, like where, where can we fit traditionalism and Steve Bannon in that milieu? And then, you know, is the rise of traditionalism kind of predicated on the rise of these other elements of the radical right? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we we have to. I think you have to say that Steve Bannon is more comfortable sharing space with those actors than a lot of mainstream politicians, or or at least if not that politicians who've held some some political office. Um, and you know, that's not to say you know we've had a, a something that I talked to him a, a lot about, um, and he felt quite compelled to talk to me, especially since we were discussing Julius Evola, who's, who's a race theorist, you know, who viewed that hierarchy in racial terms that we were talking about earlier to say that he rejects those aspects of Evola. It's, you know, it's still striking that, you know, this would then be yet another instance where he's interested in a thinker or, or a politician or a culture maker, um, you know involved in that in that very very radical race nationalist um, milieu and I also I, you know identify in the book some ways where where I see um his casual thinking about American nationalism that that it might traffic in in some tacit understandings of of race and racial hierarchy in in, in relation to you know who is a different you know who is a a more definitive member or archetype of Americanness i have to say that counts for a lot of people who would who would not want to admit it or would never never think that about themselves so i'm 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 somewhat less cavalier about about drawing conclusions based on that than some people are but i it's 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 there it's in the book nonetheless um so but when he when he looked you know i think the reason why a traditionalist might find common cause with those actors um it's not just that some branches of traditionalism are explicitly race nationalist as well. And discussion of Aryanism can, can be made to parallel discussion of whiteness and things like that. Um, it's, it's also that, um, there is an element of disruption and destruction, um, inherent, you know, the reason, the reason why, uh, Alt-right is called alt and why it, why it's described as, you know, being some, some variation of rightism is because it targets the mainstream right. Um, that's a lot of what Paul Gottfried, who really is the, the originator of, of, of the term alt-right or alternative right. That's how he, he conceived of it. And so that, that disruptive dismantling instinct, um, of, of a traditionalist would find some, some resonance there. Um, but uh, the hostility toward toward liberalism writ large, um, you know, the, the belief that um, you know left and right are just the same, and what they share is commitment to universality, toward individualism, uh, toward egalitarianism, toward a, a, you know the the de-emphasis of the collective, um, the denial of of the importance of history in shaping who we are and who we should be. Um, you know, all that thus far, we have, we have some common conceptual ground. Um, you know, the same thing can be said if, especially if we're talking of populism, populism has built into its, its critique of, of elitism, a a lot of common ground with, with aspects of, of traditionalism as well. And that really they're all rejecting, uh, you know, rejecting the no- notion that modern institutions can be meaningful sources of truth and insight. Um, a traditionalist will, will will share that aspect uh, with the populist as well. Um, you know, the nationalist would share uh, an opposition to the establishment of a global community, a world government. Um, you know, the traditionalist will oppose that out of a value for segmentation and borders, uh, whereas a, a nationalist might think more in terms of national sovereignty, but there's enough enough crisscrossing there. Um, it, it, it's one reason why, you know, I think some more thoughtful uh, critiques of my book have have suggested that, you know, what we're seeing in Bannon is just nationalism and populism given a sort of mystical flair, and 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 that could be true you know what would t- what would really settle that is if we see see these these programs play themselves out you know if traditionalists were to really come to power or if or if populism were able to live out its agendas and reach reach its conclusion um you know then we might see whether or not for example bannon's devotion to destroying this this state um has a common cause with libertarians who don't want to see any state, or or whether or not we see uh, it him breaking off at that point and wanting to see the re-establishment of a different, um, you know, powerful government that would subordinate um, economic interests, that would subordinate globalization to the to the values of the collective. We really can't can't tell. I don't think anyone can be said to have really been forced to show their show their colors or show their cards at this point because there's there's a there's a fair amount of a surprising amount of overlap between you know the the vernacular populist and the the airy occultist traditionalist interesting
0: so I think sort of for the last part of the show i'm kind of i'm very fascinated about how Bannon conceptualized foreign policy within the lens of traditionalism, even if that's possible. Because his his time on the National Security Council was kind of like, as you describe it, and as others have described it, he didn't do very well. And like, for instance, like how would he define foreign policy and how would, you know, how would we sort of, Say that that he that that conceptual foreign policy was informed by his traditionalist views, if if that's yeah. even you know possible or conceivable.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's not a way to think of it as you know to see what I th- I think what the what the original traditionalist view would be, um, you know what the, what the 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 proper Prescription would be because there's not a lot of directive coming from, uh, coming from the original traditionalist sources. Um, but one, we see the establishment of borders. Um, that certainly, a world government, um, an equalized mass society, is not going to be a traditionalist ideal. Um, similarly, we could say, uh, I I think with a degree of of confidence that a you know a traditionalist worldview would not want to see. Geopolitical relations being based upon economics or secular political values, um, because that would be, you know, let's say a a privileging of the lower class, lower caste hierarchy values um, in our dealings with one another. Um, you know we would instead see a, a world of, of resumed borders but also geopolitical maneuvering and alliance building that recognized spirituality in some way i I, I think that that's 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 a reasonable um, guess and it is what uh, what what some you know some traditionalists uh, you know Bannon in particular seemed seem to be doing um, you know one of the appeals that he makes in the and I trace this in the book in in his interactions with Alexander Dugan um, a, a very prominent political right-wing traditionalist is to create uh, an alliance between the United States and and Russia and to do so not on the not on you know trade deals or not on shared commitments to democracy or human rights which are kind of secular political you know recent modernist secular political goals but rather uh, on the notion that we are both Christian, and we're you know we're part of the Judeo-Christian West, and our political alliances need to, re- to be reshaped around that. It's the same same argument that um, he was making for including Brazil in that in that same cultural sphere. Um, it's it's reverting to our pre-modern, pre-Enlightenment era identities, and in letting that guide our actions. Um, it's worth noting that you know, just just to speak to the the chaos and the, and the vagueness of this directive, that Alexander Dugan came to very different conclusions about what a traditionalist foreign policy ought to look like. Um, you know, for him, it was not a matter of prioritizing religious groupings uh, and making sure that everyone got together with their religious partners, but instead pri- privileging spirituality against modernity and liberalism. So for him... You know, he was—he's very eager to see a relationship between Russia and Iran. He sees Iran as in, as embodying one of the one of the most ideal states in the world because it's a it's a theocracy um, in his mind. Um, you know, and he could potentially see a sort of union between Iran, you know, and let's say let's say Israel, <laughs> if 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 it, you know, if it's if it's uh, more theocratic wings were to were to you know completely take over. Um, he would want to see that type of alliance against against the secular West in his mind. Um, that would be that would be tradition mobilizing against modernity. Um, needless to say, Bannon and and Dugan did not get get along very well in their understandings of geopolitics. Um, but those are at least even if we don't come to the same con- we see them coming to the same conclusions. We can see them. You know, striving and trying to reach the same ideal, albeit in different in different ways, and that's that's where we can see some something of traditionalism manifesting. And I think it also reflects uh, in in very even even if that's very simply um, how different a world viewed f- through these eyes would be compared to what we have today, and how destructive. Because I
0: think sort of the most fascinating thing that kind of stood out to me was the debate between Bannon, Dugan, and Olavo, the, the Brazilian uh, philosopher um, because they were all like, you would consider them all traditionalists, but at the same time, there was such a diversity of views in how their respective countries, the United States, Russia, and Brazil should interact with the larger you know, geopolitics, however defined. So in that sense, like between the three men, is there anything to be teased out about what a global order should look like? Or if the, you know, the idea of a global order shouldn't even exist that it's every nation for itself, maybe rooted in, you know, an individual state with its own sense of spirituality. How does,
1: how do we sort through that? Yes, I mean, we would be talking. Certainly, they they would all agree about the need for there not to be a world government. Um, you know, from that point things fray. Uh, you know, they 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 fray quite a bit. Actually, I mean, it's, this is this is a hard question to answer because I'm. I'm I'm not I'm not sure that that there would be a great deal of of agreement beyond that. They certainly certainly also the notion of universal human rights is going to take um, is going to be significantly deprioritized for all of them in the way it in the way it relates to to everyone else you know that's the notion that um one state would get involved with the you know the internal dealings of another state is is itself a problem <laughs> In their mind, it's not—it's not a cause or an imperative for you know for say the United States to care about the treatment of women in Afghanistan. Um, and you know they would see the understanding of human rights as being the, the of universal human rights as being the, the pretext for imperialism. Um, you know, but this is uh, this is part of the part of the problem with traditionalism functioning in, in politics is that, it's it was never really meant to. It, it's a, it's a spiritual religious tradition, um, in teaching. It was it was forced into politics by some of its, uh, you know, some of its adherents at certain times, but it doesn't it doesn't give a prescription for how to deal with let's say, the question of universal health care, um, you know, or the marginal tax rate. Uh, it has it it doesn't have a lot of guidance there. And one of the things that we can look at. In this particular story, is, well what, what do these actors do when there's a void um, when they don't get they get that direction um you know where do they go and they've been by virtue of in let's say in bannon 's case the fact that he he didn't stay in the u s government the the fact that he really hasn't had that responsibility on his shoulders that often it prevents us from from really illuminating you know and coming up coming up with an answer to that. But staying up in the clouds, focusing on the big pictures, is 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 kind of the best that they can do. It's it's almost a strategic necessity um, if they want to to feel like they're acting in accordance with this particular worldview. So
0: we've come to sort of the end of the show, I've, and um, per tradition. Um, I kind of, so per tradition, we, we want the guests to leave us with something to think about, to chew on. I, I know that you've been, you know, for the last year or so, just constantly interviewing on this book and, you know, constantly talking about Bannon, but I think for just the last part of the show, it's, it's just you and just leaving us with something to think about something to, to really just, you know, leave us, you know, thinking.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um i think that i think that a lot of the commentary and the writing on on the radical right if, if i'm going to be a bit of a pessimist um i would say that um it is hostile to curiosity um and it shows that by by in, encouraging us to not see novelty or difference um and the actors that, that we're looking at. There's a reason for that. There's a good political reason for that as well, that no one wants to be um taken uh by by novelty into into misidentifying a potential threat. Um it's very much like the physician uh I think who who you know one of the worst worst fears would be underdiagnosing um an illness in a patient. Um but I would challenge readers uh in and listeners in particular to take a breath um and to know that by recognizing uh recognizing newness or difference or break with a stereotype um it does not necessarily entail softening or more or or normalizing uh, a cause, and that it might be vital in order to do that to encase something genuinely new that is going to function and breathe and think in different ways comes along. Um, it might be necessary uh, to, to pay attention to those differences and those particularities to not assume that we're just seeing a reincarnation or, or, or dressing up of, of something that's very familiar to us, which would be very intellectually politically and socially comforting. I would encourage listeners to do that, uh, to take the risk of, of, of seeing novelty of understanding the ways that change, um, for one reason to identify a threat, but also because I think uh, that in the future I think that the the response, the long-term response to populism um, and and the rise of the radical right cannot be uh, itself a revival. In fact, of of let's say the liberalism of the late 1990s and 2000s It's going to need to be something brand new as well um that's one one reason i think why this this case study is important beyond itself because it it lets us know that at least some of the thinkers in in these in these movements around the world despite the fact that they're calling themselves traditionalists you might say ironically are are in fact looking to these teachings because they're desperate to find some dramatic break from uh from the status quo um i would not surrender that that attitude of um, of urgent curiosity and that will to um, to remake and find something new, I would not surrender that to these uh, to these figures. And I think that starts with uh, with paying attention to what they're doing.
0: Awesome. So that was my guest, uh, Professor uh, Ben Teitelbaum. Uh, he's the author of War for Eternity Inside Bannon's Far Right Circle of um, global power brokers. We're going to have uh, when we publish the show, we'll have the link up. Um, obviously, thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you.